Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix. And together, we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise, all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma... Well, we have an interesting little story that a wonderful listener clued me in on. It was new to me. I hope it's new to you. If it's not, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope I do it justice. All right, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours. So, choose your poison accordingly. Alrighty, now for the game part. How about every time I say anarchist, that'll be a single shot. And every time I say American, that'll be a double shot. Alright, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So, grab your bestest bottle of bootleg gin Throw on some jazz records, my cats and kittens, and meet me at today's speakeasy as we dive into today's offering of The Big Bang of the Roaring Twenties, or the 1920 bombing of Wall Street. Dum, dum, dum. Doesn't it just need a little drama right there? I think it does. I think you guys are with me. It was a clear blue day, not a cloud in the sky when a deadly terrorist attack in New York City brought grief and outrage. Initially, the country rallied in a wave of patriotism and vowed revenge on the perpetrators. But critics said that the government was using the terrorist threat as an excuse to curtail civil liberties. 
They warned that aggressive action against the terrorists would only provoke provoke more violence and was harming America's reputation in Europe. And some charged that the president was just a puppet, and the decisions were really being made by a handful of government officials who lied and twisted intelligence reports to carry out their repressive agenda. Supporters of the government policy countered that these critics were aiding and abetting the enemy, while posing as champions of free speech. Strong measures were needed to crush a dangerous enemy, not naivete and craven appeasement. Sounds familiar? The year was 1920. Thursday, September 16, 1920. The church bells at Trinity Church overlooking Wall Street were striking noon. A 24-year-old William Joyce, head clerk at the J.P. Morgan Bank, glanced out the window at the scene outside. The busy intersection was filling with office workers heading out for their lunch break. Twin sisters Minnie and Esther Huger met up in front of the Assay office, which was part of the U.S. Treasury Department. By the way, I had to look that up. I wasn't sure what it was, but it's part of the Treasury Department. Another pair of young sisters, Margaret and Charity Bishop, also met for lunch. Just 18, they had recently joined the workforce to help support their widowed mother. Catherine Dixon stood on the sidewalk waiting for her girlfriend who wanted to apply for a job on Wall Street. Catherine had agreed to take an early lunch hour to help her out. Lawrence Roberts, a salesman for a printing company, made a bank deposit, and decided to walk to his next appointment with a client. Bernard Kennedy and Thomas Osprey walked down Wall Street, heading for the stock exchange building, carrying pouches of valuable securities. Like William Joyce, both young men were veterans of the First World War. The solid granite facades of the stock exchange the sub-treasury building, the assay office, and J.P. Morgan's bank spoke of a permanence and stability that belied the insecurity faced by many American workers in the fall of 1920. The American economy was racked by both high unemployment and sharp inflation. Lawrence Servan made a living as a peddler, and today he was selling chocolates to the noontime crowd while keeping one eye out for the police. In 1920, it was still not uncommon to see horses and carts on the streets of New York City, though few were as dilapidated and ancient as the old wooden wagon pulled by a tired old horse that servant saw pull up in front of the assay office. The driver quietly slipped down and briskly walked away. The driver of the horse and wagon knew he didn't have much time to get away. And if these were his last moments on earth, well, better comrades than he had gone in the same way. The rest of his comrades were in prison, in hiding, or in exile. And what he was about to do was for all of them. At 12.01, as the last notes of the church bell died away, there came a tremendous ear-shattering explosion. A newspaper reporter walking down Wall Street from Broadway felt the concussion of the explosion before he heard it. The sound of the blast, which seemed to shake the mighty buildings all around him to their foundations, was followed by flames and smoke a hundred feet high. 
The explosion was contained within the narrow canyon of tall buildings, and whoever was unlucky enough to be in the area was trapped in the carnage. Building awnings burnt to ash in seconds. Hundreds of people were knocked off their feet. Automobiles were lifted into the air and overturned. Minnie and Esther's hair and clothes exploded into flames. Blood splattered on the walls and sidewalk. Windows shattered from ground level to nine stories in the air. Flying glass injured Ulysses S. Grant, grandson of the Civil War general and president who worked in the Treasury building. A secretary who had just stood up from her chair to answer the telephone turned and saw glass shards all over her desk and chair. The shattering glass, which one witness said covered the inside of the J.P. Morgan office like snow, was not as deadly as the chunks of hot metal which sprayed in all directions. Projectiles slammed into the side of the J.P. Morgan building, biting holes into the smooth facade. Other chunks crashed through plate glass windows, even those that were covered with security screens. One of the hot slugs killed William Joyce at his desk. Joyce was supposed to have been on his honeymoon, but had postponed his wedding until October to cover for a colleague who was on vacation. James Saul, an office boy, was knocked flat by the blast. He stood up, his ears still ringing, smeared and splattered with blood, some of it his own. He commandeered an empty automobile and loaded it full of injured people and made four trips to Broad Street Hospital. Lawrence Roberts, the salesman, was comparatively lucky, escaping with only a, blo a broken leg. Many of the injured lay unconscious on the pavement, and others twitched in their death throes. Hundreds of panicked office workers ran away from the devastation, pursued by billowing clouds of dust. Hundreds more people were drawn to the scene by the noise of the explosion, which was heard all over Manhattan and Brooklyn. Police, firemen, and ambulances raced to the scene over streets covered with broken glass and debris of all kinds, including maimed bodies. Soon the rescue workers lined up a row of corpses covered with car blankets from automobiles, torn awning, and whatever else they could find. In addition to the frantic efforts to help the wounded, officials worried that the explosion was but a precursor to an attack on the sub-treasury building, which stood vulnerable, its windows gone, its door smashed in. The first policeman at the scene called for all Army veterans to step forward and help push back the crowds and guard the building. The New York Times reported, Within five minutes, upwards of 500 young men had forced their way through the crowd and assembled on the sidewalk for orders. Later, soldiers were called in from nearby Governor's Island to set up a security cordon around the financial district. By nightfall, the death toll stood at 31 with hundreds more injured. Dorothy Hutchinson learned that her husband William, an insurance broker, would not be coming home. Samuel Soloway identified the body of his 16-year-old son, Benjamin, at the morgue. Minnie and Esther Hooger and Margaret and Charity Bishop were treated for severe burns. Minnie hung on in terrible pain until Saturday and then died.
Charity survived, although scarred for life, but her sister Margaret died. The driver of the wagon believed that there were but two classes of people, the oppressors and the oppressed. But the majority of his victims were chauffeurs, couriers, secretaries, and bank tellers, ordinary working-class people. Some were American-born, others were from England, Ireland, Poland, and even Sweden. At first, officials theorized that an automobile had collided with a wagon carrying dynamite and that the explosion, the largest ever in Manhattan, was simply an accident. But descriptions from survivors and an inspection of the site by mine explosion experts soon convinced them otherwise. The dynamite, at least a hundred pounds of it, was indeed the kind used in demolition work, but it had been wired to a timer and packed around with hundreds of small chunks of iron. And where the horse and buggy had stood, there was a tangle of twisted metal and a large depression in the roadway. Police collected the jawbone and legs of the horse, still wearing its horseshoes. Lawrence Servin, the chocolate peddler, regained consciousness in the hospital. He told police that he had seen the driver of the wagon and described him as a dark-complexioned, unshaven, wiry man, possibly 35 or 40 years old, and dressed in working clothes with a dark cap. He seemed to be about 5 foot 6, had dark hair. His description was echoed by Secretary Rebecca Epstein, who had seen the wagon pull up and the driver walk away towards Broadway just before the explosion knocked her senseless. The following day, the stock exchange opened as usual at 10 a.m. The carnage had been swept and washed away, and canvas was tacked up over the shattered windows. In fact, so quickly had the debris been removed from the site that the police had to chase down garbage scows in search of remaining bob and wagon fragments or other possible clues. The financial leaders at Wall Street were determined to put on a display of strength in the face of the attack and to show that life would go on as usual. Coincidentally, arrangements had already been made to hold a small parade and ceremony to mark the anniversary of the adoption of the Constitution. Just a stone's throw from the spot, which 24 hours before had witnessed scenes of wildest confusion and terror, patriotic speeches were delivered from a rostrum on the site where George Washington took the oath as first President of the United States, and a fife and drum band played. It was happily noted that the bronze statue of Washington that presides over Wall Street suffered not the slightest blemish. William J. Flynn, head of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, arrived from Washington with scores of federal detectives. At police headquarters, Arthur Carey, chief of the Homicide Squad, asked for harness makers, livery stable owners, and wagon builders to help him reconstruct the shattered wagon and identify the maker of the horse's shoes. Although hundreds of city detectives and federal agents worked on the case, they turned up no firm leads. Wealthy New Yorkers hired security men to guard their homes. J.P. Morgan, who was in Europe at the time of the blast, hired his own private detectives to try to find the killer. Across the nation, policemen were called out to guard banks and government buildings. 
Detectives, detectives had to sort through hundreds of leads, rumors, and hoaxes. When it was reported that the Customs House would be blown up at 2 p.m. on Friday, thousands of New Yorkers gathered to watch the spectacle. Nothing happened. Postcards and letters warned of further bomb attacks in cities across America. Several letters appeared to have warned of the explosion before it happened, but they were swiftly traced to a man living in Canada who was known to be harmless and suffering from paranoia. It was simply a bizarre coincidence that he predicted an explosion on Wall Street. But the day after the blast, postal inspectors found a message that appeared to come from the actual terrorist. It read, Remember, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners, or it will be death for all of you American anarchist fighters. The warning, stamped on ordinary paper with a rubber printing kit, was found in a mailbox a block away from the explosion. The mailbox was emptied around 11.30 every day, so detectives reasoned that the terrorists had dropped their message into the mailbox on their way to detonating the bomb. Before the last of the victims were buried, the newspapers declared that the investigators had run out of leads in their search for the perpetrator. In fact, Flynn and the New York Police Department had a very good idea of who was behind the explosion. What they lacked was the proof. The story behind the Wall Street bombings encompasses the period known as the Red Scare and led to one of the most famous trials in American history. The nation had come through the slaughter of World War I, followed by the deadly Spanish flu pandemic. Returning soldiers clashed with immigrants for jobs. The newspapers were full of stories of labor unrest and general strikes. Wages didn't keep up with inflation. Deadly race riots broke out in Chicago and St. Louis. Wartime shortages for essentials like sugar persisted. And crime was rapidly on the increase. Gee, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Hmm. Wilson, who was president, kept a clamp on vocal opposition to the war by passing the Espionage Act, which prescribed prison terms and fines for anyone who spoke out against conscription, criticized the armed forces, or otherwise gave aid and comfort to the enemy. The 1917 Espionage Act was followed by the Sedition Act of 1918, which forbid disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language against the U.S. government. These laws were still in force in the summer of 1919 when Wilson appointed fellow Democrat A. Mitchell Palmer as his attorney general. Several months later, Wilson was felled by a stroke and was incapacitated for the remainder of his presidency. Many of the nation's problems fell to Palmer, including the problem of what to do about the radicals, many of whom were immigrants to the country. Palmer's Justice Department included the Bureau of Investigation, now known to us as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, Director William J. Flynn, a former New York City detective, was put in charge of surveilling and catching radicals. One of Flynn's assistants, a fast-rising young civil servant named John Hoover, sound familiar, was in charge of assembling all information possible about radical groups throughout the United States. Hoover filed his information on thousands of cross-referenced index cards. The public seldom distinguished between anarchists, socialists, and communists, dubbing them all Reds or Bolshies. 
although fierce debate about how best to achieve the workers' paradise raged between the radical groups. Anarchists like Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman were the first to denounce Lenin's Bolshevik revolution because they opposed his totalitarian methods. Anarchists shunned formal organization structures and were divided between those who believed in propaganda of the word and propaganda of the deed or direct action. The Haymarket bombing in which eight policemen died was the work of anarchists. An anarchist assassinated President William McKinley in 1901. A few of the Italian immigrants who migrated to communities up and down the East Coast were devoted anarchists. The foremost Italian anarchist in America at that time was Luigi Galliani, a charismatic orator who believed that violence was necessary to overthrow the capitalists who oppressed the working man. Galliani immigrated from Italy in 1901 and lived in New Jersey, Canada, and Vermont, occasionally running into trouble with the authorities, but always defiant and uncompromising in his beliefs. The members of Galliani's inner circle who figure most prominently in this account are Carlo Valdenocci, a tall, handsome bachelor, Mario Buda, a short, wiry man whose eyes glowed with the intensity of a true believer, Nicola Sacco, a hard-working, skilled tradesman, and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, an intelligent man who preferred the freedom of casual labor because it gave him time and energy to spend on his true passion, anarchism. The work of Galliani and his disciples had a public side and a hidden side, They spread the gospel of anarchy through newsletters, speeches, social events, and plays. But an inner cadre occasionally used bombs to get the message across. Galliani himself was arrested several times for inciting labor unrest and advocating anarchy, but was always acquitted. This may have been in part because any judge trying anarchist in his courtroom could count on a retaliatory strike in the form of a bomb in his courthouse or his home. And over the years, there were scattered incidents of bombings in New York City, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Boston, and Milwaukee. Criminal investigations and trials were hampered by the need to collect sufficient evidence. Conspiracies are, by their nature, difficult to prosecute. It's difficult to establish just who did what. Justice officials were certain that Galliani was behind many of the bombing incidents, but they couldn't prove it. Lacking direct evidence, they couldn't prosecute him, but they could deport him because he was a resident alien who preached criminally, criminal anarchy and had authored a how-to bomb-making manual, cheekily titled La Salute et Envoy, which means the health is within you. In October 1918, Congress passed a new law aimed at resident, resident aliens, the Anarchist Act. This new law meant for the first time, mere membership in an anarchist organization or possession of anarchist literature for the purpose of propaganda became grounds for eviction from the country, no matter how long an immigrant had lived in America. If he wasn't a citizen, he could be deported. In response, Galliani and his followers declared war on the U.S. government and announced their intentions through a published flyer that stated, and I quote, 
deportation will not stop the storm from reaching these shores. The storm is within and very soon will leap and crash and annihilate you in blood and fire. We will dynamite you. End quote. In late April, three dozen small bombs destined for a cross-section of prominent politicians, justice officials, and financiers, such as John D. Rockefeller, were sent through the mail. Only a few of these packages were delivered, although the design of the bombs was ingenious, and the infernal machines, as the newspapers took to calling them, were carefully packaged to look more like store samples. The plotters had neglected to add sufficient postage. You know, when you forget to put postage, it'll catch you every time. Just saying. Once the authorities realized that the packages marked Gimbel Brothers novelty samples contained bombs, postal officials managed to intercept them. No one was killed by the few that were delivered, but when Senator Hardwick's maid opened the package sent to his home in Georgia, her hands were blown off. Hardwick was on the anarchist hit list because he co-sponsored the deportation bill. Like virtually all prominent men, Hardwick didn't open his own mail, and the punishment fell on a servant. Once again, the little guy gets screwed. The anarchists intended their bombs to be delivered on May Day, the International Day of Revolutionary Solidarity. A month later, the anarchists managed to blow up eight large bombs nearly simultaneously outside the homes of judges, politicians, and a factory owner who had drawn their ire. Judge Albert F. Hayden of Boston, Judge W.H.S. Thompson, and Judge Charles Knott of New York sent anarchists to jail for protest and conspiracy. W.W. Sibre of the Bureau of Immigration presided over deportation hearings. In Patterson, New Jersey, a bomb exploded at the home of Harry Klotz, a powerful mill owner. The politicians on the hit list had endorsed anti-sedition laws and deportation. Mary Harry, Mayor Harry L. Davis of Cleveland, Massachusetts State Reps Leland Powers, and A. Mitchell Palmer. This was their second attempt on Attorney General Palmer's life. But once again, none of the anarchists' intended targets, or their wives and children, perished in the attacks, and the only fatalities were a night watchman, a female passerby, and one of the anarchists themselves. That anarchist was Carlo Vadanochi, Galliani's dashing young lieutenant. He was blown to bits in front of Palmer's house. He either tripped over his bomb as he was about to place it on Palmer's porch, or the bomb went off prematurely. The police collected Vadanochi's remains over a two-block area. His luxurious, dark curly hair, which the anarchist women used to sigh over, landed with his scalp on the roof across the street. But to the great frustration of the police, the only pieces of Valdenoci that they really needed, his fingertips, were atomized in the blast. You know, because that happens. For some time, they did not know the identity of the dead bomber, but strongly suspected he was an anarchist. All of the bombs were delivered with a flyer that promised war, class war, and you were the first to wage it under the cover of the powerful institutions you call order in the darkness of your laws. There will have to be bloodshed. We will not dodge. There will have to be murder. We will kill because it is necessary. There will have to be destruction. We will destroy to rid the world of your tyrannical institutions. Hmm. 
spicy. The Washington Post averred, and I quote, the series of bomb outrages occurring simultaneously in eight American cities may now serve as a warning as to what wavering indecision and weakness inevitably lead to in dealing with the new brand of Bolshevik anarchy, which is fastening itself like a foul growth on the life of the country, end quote. Prominent labor leaders countered that while they did not condone the violence, it showed that people were being driven to desperate measures by unjust working conditions and heartless capitalists. No arrests followed, by the way. Periodically, Palmer or Flynn would announce that federal agents working undercover had discovered the existence of vast conspiracies aimed at overthrowing the United States government. While historians of the Red Scare describe American reaction to radical movements as hysterical and draconian, it might be added in fairness that those who most fervently believed that radicals could overthrow the government were the radicals themselves. Galliani's eloquent, almost mystical rhetoric urged them on, and I quote, Thou hast seen the passion, the sorrow, and the horrid slaughter of undefended right. Thou hast cursed, thou hast wept, harvesting prison, misery, and affliction. Cursing is sterile, weeping cowardly. Listen, history directs you, science arms you. From unavenged tombs, killed by disease and gunshots, your fathers entrust you with their vengeance. Be bold, redemption springs from audacious revolt. End quote. He had some good words there. Nothing else could explain the suicidal course they embarked on with their 1919 bombing campaign. Under the law, Palmer's Justice Department did not have the authority to deport resident aliens. Only the Immigration Department could. The Commissioner of Immigration, Anthony Caminetti, was also in favor of deporting anarchists and argued that deportation was not a punitive act. The anarchist is merely removed from one field of activity to another where he may continue his work. He's got a point. Caminetti added that the anarchists were hypocrites to delay their deportations with legal appeals. And he said, Those who most noisily denounce every form of government in existence are the most persistent in claiming every technical and other right under the laws of the country that they are in. Well, because, you know, that's how it works. You know, I don't believe in the law, but damn it, I'm going to use the law to not believe in it. Okay, whatever. Palmer, with one eye on the pending Democratic presidential nominations, warned, and I quote, Like a prairie fire, the blaze of revolution was sweeping over every American institution of law and order, eating its way into the homes of the American workmen. Its sharp tongues of revolutionary heat were licking the altars of the churches, leaping into the belfry of the school bell, crawling into the sacred corners of American homes, seeking to replace marriage vows with libertine laws, burning up the foundations of society, end quote. He had some pretty good words, too. So with the public and the press clamoring for action, Palmer, Flynn, Hoover, and Caminetti turned their attention to rounding up and deporting as many radicals as they could. A wave of arrests and deportations known as the Palmer Raids, Luigi Galliani and eight of his adherents were deported in June of 1919, three weeks after the June second wave of bombings. The newspapers reported that the government has reason to believe they were concerned 
in a conspiracy to assassinate the President of the United States. But the evidence to that effect was not sufficient to hold up in court. For that reason, they were, there were no indictments on that charge. But several dozen members of Galliani's inner circle successfully eluded the federal dragnet, including Buddha, Sacco, and Vanzetti, who moved around and used a lot of alibis. Because, you know, it's 1920 and you can just change your name and move, right? As many as 10,000 immigrants were swept up in the raids in late 1919 and early 1920, though fewer than 500 people were eventually deported. Justice officials had also claimed to find to finding counterfeiting equipment because many of the radical groups had their own small printing presses and materials for making bombs. Once, they mistook a set of bocce balls for a new type of bomb. <laughs> a bocce ball bomb. <laughs> Say that five times fast because it's hilarious. I'm just saying. Mostly, they confiscated tons of radical literature from social clubs and private homes. A typical raid took place on August 14, 1919, at the premises of the Union of Russian Workers in Manhattan, an old private house in process of rather rapid decay. Policemen from the New York City bomb squad swarmed the building and arrested everyone inside which, with much swinging of their nightsticks. Most of, the, most of the men herded into holding pens turned out to be poor Russian immigrants who were taking English classes. The authorities believed that the free classes were, and I quote, but a blind, the real purpose being to gain recruits to the cause of revolution and anarchy. Large quantities of anarchist literature were found secreted in various portions of the premises, end quote. Most of the bruised and bewildered Russians were released, but the directors of the Union of Russian Workers found themselves on a ship bound for Russia to deny them the privilege of remaining in a country which they have openly deplored as an unenlightened community unfit for those who prefer the privileges of Bolshevism should be no hardship, Palmer remarked. 2,000 more aliens were being held and awaiting deportation when 70-year-old Assistant Secretary of Labor Louis Friedland Post intervened. Post was appalled by the Palmer raids, which marked immigrants for deportation without legal counsel or, in some cases, evidence of any wrongdoing. He reviewed the pending deportation orders and canceled most of them. You go, boy. Okay, that doesn't sound right, but whatever. In his memoir of the Red Scare, Deportation's Delirium, he wrote that Palmer's justice officials trampled on the Constitution. So detectives of the Department of Justice ruthlessly invaded peaceable homes in the small hours of the morning, without warrants but upon a pretense of imminent danger to the community, and arresting inmates in their beds, searched their rooms, seized lawful private property, and hurried their prisoners to police stations where, before the sun had risen, they subjected them to third-degree examinations in efforts to discover evidence of a guilt that apparently did not exist." They kept prisoners incommunicado, old Spanish fashion, for days at a stretch, lawlessly intercepting their letters in the mail, depriving them of the help of friends and the services of lawyers, placing them beyond the, rich, the reach of writs of habeas corpus, and hiding them so that their families were in distress from ignorance and fear. And the victims, those moral rats, what were their offenses? Were they criminals? In almost every instance, no. 
Palmer countered that Post was defying the law because of his own personal view that the deportation law is wrong. The assistant secretary was a moonstruck parlor radical who had even invited Emma Goldman into his home. Too many public alarms were false alarms, which undermined his, which undermined his credibility. Palmer had predicted more mayhem for May Day 1920. Discover May Day plot of Reds, many federal and state officials marked for death. But the day passed peacefully. Jackson Ralston, a Washington lawyer, complained that the Justice Department advertised uprising on specific dates, which failed time after time to materialize until the whole matter became a national joke. Further, Ralston charged that some of the detainees had been arrested on bogus charges with faked evidence and added some of the bombs alleged to have been sent to prominent persons had never been produced. Although the Palmer raid ceased, undercover surveillance and deportation of radicals continued. Eugenio Ravarino, an undercover agent working for Flynn's Bureau of Investigation, managed to penetrate what was left of the Italian anarchist movement. Acting on Ravarino's information, federal agents began to roll up the remaining Gallianist radicals making arrests in Patterson, New Jersey, New Jersey, and Brooklyn. I know I said New Jersey, and that's hilarious. I'm sorry. I love New Jersey. You guys have a beautiful state, but I'm going to call it New Jersey from now on. I love you. I'm kidding. Two of those arrested, Roberto Elia and Andrea Salcedo, were of particular interest because they were printers who may have been responsible for publishing the anarchist manifestos that accompanied their bombs. The two were held incommunicado, illegally, at Justice Department headquarters in New York, and the evidence is that they were beaten. After several days of intensive interrogation, Salcedo confessed to their connections with the Gallianists and named other members of the group. Word reached Buddha, Sacco, and Vanzetti that their comrades were being held and interrogated. The remaining Gallianists concluded that their days were numbered, and most, including Sacco, made preparations to leave the country. Some have argued that one of his preparations was to acquire some cash for himself and his fellow anarchists by robbing the payroll of a shoe factory in South Braintree, Massachusetts, where he once briefly worked. Meanwhile, Salcedo flung himself out of a 14th-story window at the Justice Department. Although some, including Assistant Labor Secretary Post, believe Salcedo was murdered. This seems unlikely since he shared a room with Elias, who would have been a witness to any struggle. Further, Flynn lamented that Salcedo's death hampered the investigation of the bombing campaign. It's more likely that Salcedo killed himself because he knew that he was a marked man, having betrayed his comrades. The next day, Sacco and Vanzetti were arrested and eventually charged with armed robbery and murder, resulting in the most hotly debated trial of the 20th century. Bartolomo Vanzetti and Niccolo Sacco were indicted on September 11th, and five days later, Wall Street exploded. The Washington Post editorialized that the wholesale murder was the fruit of so-called radicalism. With the enactment of every law designed to protect the American government from radicalism, and at every suggestion for the suppression of propaganda inimical to constitutional government, there are thousands of well-meaning people in the United States who threw up their hands in holy horror lest the guarantee of free speech 
be infringed. Sacco and Vanzetti were not on trial for radicalism, but for killing a payroll guard and a clerk and making off with $16,000 in payroll cash. Nevertheless, it is an interesting historical question. Were they part of the bombing conspiracies of the Gallianists? Historian Paul Average concludes, and I quote, Though, though the evidence is far from satisfactory, the answer almost certainly is yes. Both were ultra-militants, believers in armed retaliation. They carried guns, they were associated with known participants in the plot, Budo reckoned them the best friends he, he had in America, and they were equally close to Valdinocci, the man who died when planting a bomb. After Valdinocci's death, his sister Asunuta went to live with the Sacos and remained with them for many years. End quote. The night Sacco and Vanzetti were detained, they were questioned about their radical activities and associates, not the South Braintree payroll robbery. They understandably assumed that they had been caught in the dragnet for anarchists, and understandably, they lied. They also told their lawyer that they were hiding a cache of dynamite that night and were lying to cover their tracks. So, even though they were not on trial for their anarchist beliefs or any terrorist activities, the defense strategy was hopelessly compromised. From the point of view of saving Sacco and Vanzetti's lives, the defense attorneys should have focused on the crimes themselves and shown that the prosecution's evidence didn't rise to the standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt. But Sacco and Vanzetti had to explain why they had lied to the authorities. They were not covering up the participation in the robbery, they explained. They were hiding the fact that they were anarchists. But this explanation brought their anarchist beliefs into the courtroom, and Prosecutor Frederick G. Katzman took full advantage of their quandary, painting them as ingrates to the red, white, and blue, or worse. Sacco and Vanzetti were convicted on July 14, 1921. They were executed seven days later after numerous failed appeals. The execution sparked anti-American demonstrations around the world. Rioters in Paris swarmed the streets, smashing American cars. They entered movie theaters and pulled American films out of the projectors. In Geneva, a mob swarmed American consulate shouting, Murderers! Murderers! It is often asserted that Sacco and Vanzetti were deliberately framed. They were initially arrested because of suspicious circumstances that pointed to their participation in the South Braintree holdup. One of their associates, Ferrucci Coacci, had missed his April 15th deportation sailing but voluntarily left the country immediately thereafter. Coacci lived near South Braintree and Chief Michael Stewart, who was investigating the April 15th murder robbery, wondered if there was a connection. The stolen car used in the robbery was found abandoned near Koachi's home. The police went to Koachi's home to investigate and found Mario Buda living there. Buda gave them a false name and disappeared after being questioned. The police learned that Buda had left his own car in a local garage and they asked the garage owner to let them know when he came to pick up his car. On May 5th, Buda and three other men showed up at said garage and the garage owner told them they couldn't drive the car because it didn't have current license plate, while his wife slipped to a neighbor's house to phone the police. The men reluctantly left. The police sent an officer to check the Bridgewater streetcar and detain any foreigners. 
Although Sacco and Vanzetti had lived in the United States for 12 years, their appearance and demeanor made them instantly visible as the foreigners on the streetcar. When arrested, they were both carrying guns. Vanzetti's gun was said to match the gun stolen from the slain payroll guard. Three different brands of bullets were used in the robbery. The same three brands were found in Sacco's pocket. Although the police had probable cause to make an arrest, the trial that followed was anything but fair. Judge Webster Thayer made no secret of his contempt for the defendants, telling a friend, and I quote, Did you see what I did to those anarchist bastards the other day? That ought to hold them for a while, end quote. And a friend of Harry Ripley, the foreman of the jury, told the court, Ripley said that even if Sacco and Vanzetti were innocent of the robbery murder, they ought to hang them anyway. The evidence against them was shaky, particularly the eyewitness evidence. New evidence that turned up after their conviction, including a confession from a career criminal that his gang had robbed the payroll, did not win them a new trial. Most legal analysts agree that the prosecution didn't prove the case against them, particularly Vanzetti, and it was prejudice against foreigners and resentment of anarchists that sent them to their doom. But miscarriages of justice occur every single day. Not even injustice brings millions of protesters out into the street. The difference was that Sacco and Vanzetti's case was seized upon as a cause célèbre, or celebrity cause, the judicial murder of a good shoemaker and a poor fish peddler. Attracting, in the words of writer Francis Russell, literary left, radicals, liberals, communists, wool, woolly, well-meaning progressives, plus a large scattering of people who could not be labeled politically but whose sense of justice had been outraged. Some of these latter were starched conservatives, the crystallized view of the opposition was that Sacco and Vanzetti were the victims of a malignant cons conspiracy. The trial was a put-up job to get rid of two troublesome agitators. According to historian William Koch, the Comintern or Communist International, an organization controlled by Moscow, whose purpose was to encourage the spread of communism worldwide, saw the useful propaganda value of the Sacco and Vanzetti case. The Comintern set up a front organization called the International Labor Defense and collected vast sums for Sacco and Vincetti's defense, although they kept most of the money and gave only a pittance to the two condemned men. Essentially, communists masquerading as progressives, lionized militant anarchists posing as pacifists to further denigrate the United States and fatten the Comintern's pockets. The charade was sometimes difficult for the condemned men to bear. They told their friends they would have proudly died for anarchism, but to be executed for a sordid murder and a grubby robbery was a different matter. If Sacco and Vanzetti were framed because they were anarchists, we are no closer to understanding why they were framed because they were anarchists. The authorities deported the most dangerous anarchist of all, Luigi Galliani, and most of his comrades. There is no apparent reason why Sacco and Vanzetti, who had no prior criminal records, should have been singled out for judicial murder as opposed to deportation. Any satisfaction to be gained by killing these two particular anarchists would be more than outweighed by the expense of the trial, the many appeals, and the condemnation directed against the state of Massachusetts and the United States by those who protested the executions. 
and if the authorities were in the business of framing anarchists for crimes they didn't commit, they never got around to framing anyone for the Wall Street bombing. Even though federal agents picked up several likely candidates, all radicals, who would have made excellent patsies. Decades later, an old associate of the Gallianists told historian Paul Average that Mario Buda was the driver of the wagon that blew up Wall Street. This fits what is known about Buddha's movements at the time. But Buddha was beyond the reach of the Bureau of Investigation. He left the country after the bombing and returned to Italy. In 1927, the Mussolini government arrested him as a dangerous anarchist and sentenced him to five years in prison. The Italian anarchist movement in America was shattered by the Palmer raids. There were a few final salvos from the anarchists. In the years following Sacco and Vanzetti's trial, bombs went off at the houses of witnesses, a juror, and, a, and Judge Thayer himself. No one was killed. But there were no further fatal domestic terror attacks on U.S. soil until the 1970s and the emergence of a Puerto Rican independence group and the radical weathermen. The legacy of the Red Scare era includes the American Civil Liberties Union, which was founded to assist conscientious objectors in World War I and to protest anti-sedition laws that curbed free speech, and immigration quotas that favored immigrants from northern European countries. A. Mitchell Palmer failed in his effort to win the 1920 Democratic presidential nomination. He resigned as U.S. Attorney General in April of 1921. William J. Flynn resigned as head of the Bureau of Investigation in September of 1921, but his assistant, John Hoover, or better known to history as J. Edgar Hoover, became chief of the FBI in 1924 and remained in that post until his death in 1972. The marks of the 1920 Wall Street bomb explosion are still visible on the facade of the J.P. Morgan building. Two historical footnotes. In 1942, a right-wing extremist named William Dudley Pelle was sentenced to 15 years in prison for saying that President Franklin Roosevelt lied about the extent of the damage at Pearl Harbor. Unlike Sacco and Vanzetti, his case was not taken up by the common turn, and he did not become a free speech martyr. During Roosevelt's presidency, prosecutions suppressing free speech were brought against both communists and fascists. And in 1916, labor leader Tom Mooney was convicted for throwing a bomb during a parade in San Francisco, in which 10 people were killed. It's generally accepted today that he was wrongfully convicted, as he was pardoned in 1939. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. And I thank you for joining me here today on Renegade Talk Radio. And I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you thought about today's episode. I thought it was a pretty interesting story. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. You can always reach me and the show at darkenenigmapodcast at gmail.com. I'm a little drunk now. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, you want to make fun of me stumbling over my, my words, by all means, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. And I thank you again for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time 
See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.